It's such a romantic and sweeping phrase, the Harlem Renaissance. It sounds like a whole world in one neighborhood. Was it really a renaissance? Was it really a rebirth? Sometimes the term seems... So in a conversation with scholar Emily Bernard, who wrote the book Remember Me to Harlem, I wanted to get beyond the catchphrase. The term renaissance is also misleading because there was just no moment when black people weren't producing art since the inception of black presence in this country, starting with the slave narrative. Bernard says it was more about the thinking and politics behind the art, coming out of a series of really earth-shaking events. Not only a massive flu epidemic, but also the Great Migration, World War I, with black soldiers fighting abroad in huge numbers, and with a shocking escalation of racism when they returned. All of that pushed black America into a soul-searching, redefining movement. Black writers were talking about the emergence of this new person, idea, entity, the new Negro. And the new Negro was supposed to be a corrective impulse. The old Negro was a figure of degradation and shame, the kind of stooping figure. It was essential that one assume that mask of absolute deference. And it was a past that Black writers and artists of the 20s, 30s, and on needed to put to bed. It was presented so much. I mean, not only a way of thinking and a way of making art, but also literally the body. The idea that the new Negro was about a new kind of physical presence. It ties in so much to everything that happens after World War I. Mm-hmm. a body consciousness, a sense of presentation of self tied to the level of injury and disfigurement that were seen at the time. So it's interesting to hear you uh, speak about it. Well, you can, you know, the the phenomenon of the new woman. I mean, it was sort of a sibling of the new Negro. And what is the new woman? Well, we can conjure an image of you know, you cut your hair, you were smoking cigarettes in public, your hemline, you know, was suddenly, you could expose your knees in public. It was so much concerned with public presentation. It's amazing how, how many stories the body can contain. But it's also interesting because this was Harlem, which had become a major publishing hub and uh, was primarily a literary movement, wasn't it? I think the, the literature of the period has, you know, for many important reasons been celebrated, but... Even though, you know, we talk so much about the literature, I want to say that the literature is so heavily influenced by the music. The freedom that, I'm thinking of a figure like Gladys Bentley. I made you men treat us women like you. An out lesbian. Tremendous performer, and Langston Hughes writes about her, and it's clear that language can't even hold her. I don't want no man that I got to give my money to. The humor and the boldness of this woman. So music and then, of course, visual art is a, a tremendously important arm of this movement. But all of these artists in whatever you know medium were contending with a white establishment, patrons, gallery owners, publishers. How can we navigate this institution that does want to keep us and imagine us in a certain kind of way? How can we insist upon the variety of blackness and, you know, the way we want to think about art? That was something that was consistent for all artists of this period. 
And how did they? How did they confront this? How did they overcome this? Well, I mean, what's fascinating and kind of sobering is that Black artists are still (laughs) trying to wrestle with this question. There's no way around it. Wrestling with questions was one of the things they did during the Harlem Renaissance movement in the 1920s. It was never simple. The key players were always challenging the premise of it. There were a lot of Black people who felt this whole thing about art is, is elitist. And Langston Hughes ends up saying, you know, the Harlem Renaissance didn't raise anybody's wages. <laughs> you know, all of this white interest in our culture, what did it really amount to for the common person, if you will? You know, it didn't affect their lives at all. Is it possible to say what was important about this movement and why is it so vividly remembered? And is that right that it was an elitist movement? How do you add it all up? There was a tremendous amount of faith in the potential of art to do essential and necessary corrective work because the work they were doing could potentially enable black progress in the political realm. So art and politics, it's something that continues today. You know, what is the responsibility of the black artist? Does black artists have to uplift the race or can they just make art? Does a black artist have to produce a certain kind of art to be seen as authentic? So what happened in Harlem, starting in the 1920s, seems almost like a laboratory. Smart people experimenting with approaches that might send powerful messages. And it was a first. It's a first kind of cohesive African-American cultural movement. And subsequent movements are reacting to that movement. And when black power activists come along, I'm thinking of someone like Leroy Jones. He wants to reject all of that, you know, an impulse toward assimilation. But the black power movement and the black black aesthetics would not have existed without the Harlem Renaissance to kind of measure itself against. It is the standard, whether or not you reject it or you embrace it. It's the only thing there is out there. It's the only game in town. Maybe that's one answer. Maybe Renaissance or not, the movement in Harlem was a whole world in one neighborhood. A century later, you can feel how after a series of crises, there was a step forward as a community brought art, music, literature, and politics together. It's Fishko Files. I'm Sarah Fishko. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.